at Luke's introduction, it's just one sentence, but it spans over those first four verses. And there in Luke's introduction, we saw how he told us that he's compiled uh, through eyewitness testimonies this narrative of the life and ministry and death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Uh, he is sharing this narrative with a man named Theophilus. Theophilus is someone that we know uh, very little about. Uh, I think there's indications that he was a Roman official, perhaps someone that uh, Paul and Luke had shared the gospel with, and he either uh, was a, a follower of Christ, being strengthened in his faith, or he was yet to become a follower of Christ, and, and Luke is writing to him in order to encourage him to trust in Jesus. And so uh, both of Luke's books, his gospel of Luke and then the book of Acts, uh, both are shared with Theophilus for this reason. But obviously they're also shared with us because they're written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God intended that when Luke was writing every word of his gospel, that this gospel would go forward to the church and that it would be shared throughout the history of the church and that it would be here for us this morning as we gather at Bloomfield Baptist Church that we might be encouraged in our faith. As I mentioned last week, Luke's gospel contains quite a bit of information that the other Gospels uh, don't have. And, and part of that in these first two chapters is the, the story of the birth of John the Baptist. And chances are Luke was able to write about this because he interviewed Elizabeth, uh, John's mother. And so uh, as we look to God's Word today, we're going to look at the foretelling of the birth of John in verses 5 through 25 of Luke chapter 1. And out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, I want to invite you to stand together as I read God's word and as we prepare to hear from God's word. And this is what God's word says. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priests before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing, right, uh, to the, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just 
to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. If you would pray with me. Father, help us this morning to trust in the counsel of your word. Help us to walk in the ways of your word. Help us, Lord, to have faith and to believe in you and to trust that you will do the very things you have promised to do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as you are all likely aware at this point, I am three months now out from having a kidney transplant, and so something that has become a very regular activity in my life is going to the doctor. Uh, I go every week and get labs. I see the doctor about every three to four weeks, and I don't know if you've been to a doctor's office recently, but if you have, uh, you've likely had the same experience where when you, you go to check in, uh, they used to hand you a, a clipboard with lots of documents that you were supposed to sign, but, but now in our advanced technology, uh, when you go to the doctor, at least when I go to the doctor, you've got a little, a little pad there and a, a pen, and you just sign. And so I go through this routine every Thursday. I, I go in, I tell them my name. Uh, they say, okay, sign your name. I sign my name. Uh, then a few moments later, okay, give your initials. I give my initials. Uh, then give your initials again, I give my initials again, now write self, I write self, now sign your name, I sign my name, and then I go sit down. Uh, for all I know, I've just committed to give them a million dollars. I don't know what I'm signing, and you don't know what you're signing, because we have become accustomed to this practice. In fact, I'm just going to guess that for many of you, you, you probably got some type of update on your phone this week, and in order to download that update on your phone, uh, there was a long, long user agreement, and you had to click a button that said, I accept these terms. Now, some of you may have spent the better part of your weekend reading through those terms, but for most of us, what do we do? Scroll down, scroll down, hit click, I accept. Or maybe you've gone through the process of, of buying a house, and you sit down there at the lender's office, and you go through the process of signing mortgage papers. And again, some of you, you may read through every one of those terms, but for many, 
sign here, sign here, initial this, initial this, sign here, sign here. And that's what we do. Well, why do we do this? Well, I'm sure most of us understand when we're getting a mortgage or we're going to a doctor's office, there, there are important things being communicated to us, but we just don't like to read the small print. <laughs> Well, we know that there's likely something very important there. We, we just don't see the point of reading through every detail. Well, that's all well and good, but we need to be careful. And not just about what we sign our name to. We, we need to be careful when we bring that same attitude to the Word of God. Because what we often do, sadly, is we come to God's Word and we just kind of flip past a lot of it to get to what we deem are the important parts or the inspirational parts or, or that which we came looking for to begin with. And so we're tempted when we get to things like Luke's gospel just to, to look ahead to that, that great scene of the nativity and the birth of Jesus or to look ahead to the Sermon on the Mount or to look ahead at, at one of many miraculous things that Jesus does. And in that process, we can skip over things, especially skip over parts of the Bible, because we, we consider them to, to be important, and yet we just don't feel the need to read all those small print. Well, this morning I want to remind you of an important truth. There is no small print in God's Word. That there are no less significant parts. God's Word is inspired from beginning to end, and when we skip over sections of it, we skip over some very important promises of God, and we miss out then on the fulfillment of the promises of God. And so one of the reasons that we're going to take time to walk through Luke's gospel in particular is because Luke includes details that are very important for us, not just to read and understand, but to be strengthened in our faith in Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to do that by looking at the birth account of John the Baptist. Now, as we look at this, it's important that we understand uh, where this fits in the, the history of God's people and in the timeline of God's Word. Uh, earlier, I read to you from Malachi chapter 4. I'll remind you again of the, the closing verses of Malachi chapter 4. God says through his prophet, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Least I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now imagine that you are alive in Malachi's day. And you are in a day, now this might seem far-stretched to imagine, imagine you're living in a time and a day when there's great wickedness all around. And in the midst of that great wickedness, God is speaking his word through his prophets, and he speaks his word through Malachi, just as he had spoken his word through many before Malachi. And the word that he speaks in this day of great wickedness is the promise and the hope of a day that's coming. That one is going to come in the spirit of Elijah, and, and they're going to proclaim, they're going to be a forerunner, that, that this great day of the Lord is coming. You know, imagine in that day of wickedness where you can see fathers turned against their children, children, children turned against their 
fathers, their parents, this promise that a day is going to come where, where God's going to bring reconciliation. This day of hope. And you hear that message. And then you, you want to know what else is going to happen. You need more encouragement. You need another word. And yet, from that moment until the day you die, there's not another word. You see, as we look at Malachi's prophecy, it's not just the end of our Old Testament as it's arranged. That's the last word from God to his people for 400 years. Four centuries go by, and there's no prophecy given. Four centuries go by, and there is silence. Now, God is still at work among his people. God is still preserving a remnant. God is still at work, but he is not giving his word to his people. And we know this as the silent years between the close of Old Testament history and the beginning of New Testament history. 400 years. And then how is the silence broken? Well, we read about it in Luke chapter 1. That the very first word of revelation that comes from God to his people 400 years after Malachi announced this word, the very first word that the silence is broken by an angel who speaks the word of God to a priest named Zechariah. And so it is with that understanding then that we walk now through this passage. And as we walk through this passage, I want us to consider a few questions. Because again, the, the, the purpose of Luke writing this to Theopolis, this fundamental purpose we saw in the introduction, is so that our, our faith might be strengthened in Christ. And so I want to put before us a few questions this morning to, to, to help us think about that and how our faith might be strengthened or where even our faith is today. And so the first question that I put for us is there in your outline. Number one, do you have faith in God's promises? Do you have faith in God's promises? Now, your answer to that might be, well, which one? <laughs> and we understand that there are literally thousands of promises of God in the Bible. In fact, uh, many have gone through God's Word from beginning to end, and there's uh, approximately uh, seven to 8,000 times in the Scripture where God has made a specific promise to His people and to people in general. And so we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of promises. But again, that there's no small print. <laughs> that there's none that are insignificant. And so the question do you have faith in God's promises? Is Do you have faith in God's promises? All of them. Now, we're going to look at just a couple of them this morning, but that's where we begin. Do we have faith in God's promises? Do we believe that God will do what he said he will do? One of the very first promises we see in the scripture is given in Genesis chapter 3. Now, again, you know the context of Genesis chapter 3. Uh, Genesis 1, God creates all things. He, he creates the the heavens and the earth, he, he creates man, he gives Adam and Eve dominion over the garden, he gives them specific instruction, he tells them they can eat of any tree in the garden except for this one, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, Satan comes in the form of a serpent, he brings with him temptation, Adam and Eve sin against God, they rebel against his command, they do not obey him, and with that comes the fall of man. But even in the midst of fall, and this great calamity and devastation that comes, God gives a promise. He gives hope. 
And Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the, the serpent, between your offspring and her offspring. Uh, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And as we unpack this promise, we see very clearly this is speaking of the Messiah who would come, Jesus Christ, who would crush the head of the serpent. And so this, this promise, this word of hope that's given in the midst of awful devastation, <laughs> the fall of man, this promise is that one day the Messiah is coming. Now, generations go by, and generations hear about this promise, and generations are, are looking for the fulfillment of this promise. And yet every time we see in the Scripture throughout the Old Testament, God raise up one to speak on his behalf, and, and the people perhaps tempted to, to wonder, is this the one who's going to lead us? We see very quickly, no, that these are fallen men and women. And so we have Abraham, this great man of God, who does what? He jeopardizes the entire plan of God by lying and saying his wife is his sister in order to protect his life. This offspring that will come through his wife, he puts all that on the line, all that in jeopardy, because he's not trusting and believing in God. And God raises up Moses, this deliverer, this one who he spares his life as a baby. He, he's going to use him greatly, and yet Moses is a fallen man. He's a murderer. He doesn't believe God. He doesn't trust God. He doesn't think he can be the one speaking on behalf of God. He tells God he's going to need to raise up someone else to speak. And we saw very recently in our study of First and Second Samuel, uh, King David, that the Lord's anointed king, the one that God would use in a great and mighty way, and yet we see a front seat to David's life in the scripture of his fallenness and his humanity and his sin and his not trusting God and following the ways of God, his sin of adultery, his sin of murder. We see over and over again these men that God raises up. They, they, these aren't the ones that were promised in Genesis 3.15. And then you get to the end of the Old Testament. There's these years of silence, 400 years of silence. No prophets, no words from God, no messengers, just silence. And you can imagine the temptation then for people not to believe and not to trust. And you can imagine people who at this point would start to lose hope and who would say, well, yeah, we, we realize that was a promise people were holding on to for a long time, but... God's not speaking any new words to us now. It's been a long time, and we haven't seen the Messiah come. And you can imagine the temptation then not to be faithful, and yet it is in that context that we pick up in verse 5, and we read about the faithfulness of this elderly couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. We learn in verse 6 that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So that word that was given to Malachi, instructing the people, walk in the ways of the Lord, believe in God, trust in God, even in the midst of this wickedness, we see now, hundreds of years later, Zechariah and Elizabeth following that command, following that word, walking in the ways of the Lord. And yet we see that their, their life was filled with struggle. And they knew what it was to suffer. Particularly, we learn in verse 7 that they had no children because Elizabeth was barren. Elizabeth couldn't have children. And this would have been a, a 
huge difficulty, a great suffering for them. One commentator I read said it this way, in any culture, infertility is an aching disappointment. And for some, an almost unbearable stress. But the burden cannot be compared to that borne by a childless woman in ancient Hebrew culture. Because barrenness was considered a disgrace, even a punishment. And so in Elizabeth's day, to be infertile, to, to not be able to have a child, that, that wouldn't have been something that necessarily others would have looked on with compassion or empathy. No, it would have been something people looked on as having an indication about Elizabeth not being faithful and Zechariah not being faithful. And so as Elizabeth walks through the marketplace, there, there would have been young mothers with their children looking at her and mocking her. They would have turned to one another and said, well, there goes Elizabeth. I wonder what her great sin is. I mean, here she is married to Zechariah the priest, this man of God. And yet, if they were really godly, God would give them a child like he's given me. No, there, there's something in their life. There's some sin. I, I can't believe she would even come out in public. She is a disgrace, and she should be ashamed. This is the context. This is the culture that Zechariah and Elizabeth lived in. People would have looked at them. Unbelieving people would have looked at them and said, how can you have faith in a God who allows you to suffer through this humility and this shame. How can you trust in a God who won't even open up your womb? Surely you are cursed. And yet, what do we learn about Zechariah and Elizabeth? We learn that despite their personal suffering, they are faithful, they trust in God, and they believe in God, even when God did not provide the very thing they were longing for. There, there's a lesson there for us. Because, friends, I want you to think this morning, how, how do you respond when you're seeking to walk by faith, and you're seeking to trust in God, and you're seeking to live according to the Word of God, but the thing you're longing for the thing you're seeking God for, God's not providing. How do you respond? How do I respond when, when we're seeking to walk by faith and it seems that bad thing after bad thing, suffering after suffering, trial after trial just seem to keep coming our way? I've mentioned this a number of times. I'll say it again. Suffering is not proportional. We don't just start out in life with this scale, knowing that we're all going to suffer so much, and maybe more will come at other times than others, but we're all going to have this amount of suffering in our life and just be prepared before we get used to it. That's not how it works. That there are some that suffer immensely more than others, that go from bad news to bad news, or from a worst-case scenario to an even worst-case scenario. I was listening to the testimony of a pastor this week. He's my age, in his late 40s. We met years ago at a conference and have stayed in touch since. And 
he was giving this testimony to his church and explaining to them why at the age of 48, he needed to retire from being a pastor. And he shared how he's had cancer, terminal cancer, <laughs> twice, and yet lived. And how now he's being diagnosed with a heart condition. Now he's very, from the outside, very healthy, in shape, but, but, but now the doctors have shared with him he has a heart condition and they told him if he doesn't immediately make a major change vocationally, he's not going to live to see 50. Now, some would look at this and say, well, well, there's your God for you. Here's this guy who's a, a pastor and a preacher, and hey, he's so faithful, and yet look what God has done to him. How can you trust a God who would allow such great suffering? Or people pose the question another way. Why would a good God allow evil? allow suffering. I mean, having cancer twice and then heart disease, that, that's just the tip of the iceberg. If you want to talk about evil and wickedness and suffering, the world is filled with it. How can a good God, a loving God, allow this? And so some look at that and they, they, they just, they mock it. And they scorn those who believe. And then there, there are those of us who, who do believe, who in the midst of that, we're, we're tempted, aren't we? We feel like somehow there should be this arrangement where if we just trust God and we just walk by faith, everything will kind of turn out in our favor. We don't have to be the wealthiest person, the healthiest person, but maybe a few things will go our way, and yet sometimes it seems nothing goes our way, and we struggle and we're tempted in those moments to walk away. In fact, it's in those moments that many do walk away. And so... When we see Zechariah and Elizabeth not walking away, friends, that, that is an encouragement for us. And that should strengthen us in our faith to see how God can enable us and empower us to walk by faith and not by sight in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering. And, and to be reminded that, that, that God will keep every promise he's ever made, that, that God indeed will do what God is going to do. He, he just doesn't operate on our schedules and our timing. And I think that's a lesson we see here in Luke 1. God had not promised Zechariah and Elizabeth that they would ever have a child. So it's not a matter of them holding on to this promise that God made that they'd have a child and, and one day they just know they're going to have a child. But what had God promised? God had promised in Genesis 3 a Redeemer would come. God had promised in Malachi 4 that a forerunner to that Redeemer would come. And now God is going to fulfill the promise of that forerunner coming through the prayers of this barren couple at a time in their life that no one would expect it. Because that's how God so often works. A great quote along these lines comes from Pastor Tim Keller, who, if you don't know Tim Keller, uh, he is now dying of terminal cancer and yet is remaining faithful and trusting in God and writing things like this. You cannot judge God by your calendar. God may appear to be slow, but he never forgets his promises. He may seem to be working very slowly or even to be forgetting his promises, but when his promises come true, and they will come true, they always burst the banks of what you imagined. 
And that's what we see in Luke chapter 1. God is going to fulfill this promise that was made in Genesis 3 and Malachi 4. And he is going to do it in such a way that brings him glory and astounds the people involved. In fact, they struggle to believe that he's going to do it in such a way. And so that brings us to our second question there in your outline, number two. Do you persevere in prayer? So, so do you trust and believe in these promises? And when it seems God is slow or perhaps you're tempted to believe he's not going to fulfill them, do you continue to trust him? Do you persevere? And especially when it comes to prayer. You know, it's, it's so casual for us often to pray. Well, we just pray and we, we, we say it and then we move on. But it's a whole other thing for us to commit ourselves to prayer, to, to pray without ceasing. You know, it's one thing to say to someone this morning, well, I'll be praying for you. And I'm sure you do every single time you say it. Some of us struggle with that. But, you know. but, but to do that more than once, to do that more than in that moment, to make sure you keep the word, let me pray for him real quick. I mean, have you ever been tempted before you make that phone call or send that text or send that card that says I'm praying for you to stop real quick? Oh, wait, I got to pray for him. Now I can say I prayed for you. That, that's not persevering per se. Not, not, I mean, we need to pray. But, but what we see in the scripture is this picture of just persevering in prayer and continuing to cry out before God. And I think we see a picture of that here in Zechariah. So, so we pick back up here, verse 8. Zechariah is chosen to enter the temple to burn incense. Now, historically, this is a really big deal. And we know through history that each, uh, but before the, the two daily services, there were, there were lots that were cast. And when those lots fell upon a certain priest, they were able to participate. They were the temple participants. And in this case, we read that the, the incense lot fell on Zechariah. Now, this would have been very significant in Zechariah's life because when this happens, it's very special. It, it, it can only be done once by a priest. So this is a one-time in their, his whole lifetime experience. And for many, they never even got that one opportunity. And so here's this, this old man. He served God faithfully. He's suffered along the way. In the midst of a wicked generation, he's trusting God, and he's going to go into the, the temple, and he's going to offer this incense at the incense altar. Well, he goes in to do this, this once-in-a-lifetime honor. And now, something very significant is going to happen. Now, if you had said to Zechariah beforehand, something significant is going to happen, he would think, well, yeah, this is significant. <laughs> I'm entering into this holy place. I'm offering this incense to the holiness of God. This is a picture of the presence of God. That this is the, the pinnacle of anything I'll ever do. And yet, God has something else altogether in store for him. Because as he goes in to offer that incense, the, the angel, Gabriel, appears to him with this message. 400 years of silence. I would imagine if you had asked Zechariah before he went into the temple, what's the least likely thing to occur today? <laughs> it, it would be for that silence to be broken. But what does God do? God bursts through the banks of, of what we might imagine. And the angel Gabriel speaks to Zechariah. Notice what he says there in verse 13. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Now, we're not told how many times Zechariah prayed, 
I think the indication is this is something Zachariah had been praying for for a long time, along with his wife Elizabeth. We're, we're not even tell, or told exactly what prayer has been heard. I think the indication, though, in the statement that's made from Gabriel is that it was the prayer for a son. Because he said, your, your prayer's been heard, and your wife Elizabeth's going to bear you a son. And then he goes on to tell him, now listen, you're not just going to have a child. This child is the fulfillment of a promise. That this child is the one that was spoken of 400 years ago by Malachi. This child will be the forerunner of the Messiah. You talk about bursting the banks of what Zechariah might have imagined. It is overwhelming to him. That even as he had prayed time and time and time again, he would have never been expecting this as the answer to his prayer. I mean, again, just, just imagine what it was, what it was like for Zechariah and for Elizabeth. All, all of these years. I mean, there's no infertility clinics in their day. That There's no adoption agencies in their day. You know, when we pray for something and it doesn't happen, we're, we're tempted to kind of take matters into our own hands, but there's really nothing for Zechariah to take in his own hands here. And so he prays and he prays and he prays, and it seems like there's just silence. But then this answer comes late in his life, late in his wife's life. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. I can't imagine what would have been going through his mind at that point. We get an indication, and we'll get to that in a moment. But, but again, I want to pause and consider here. What, how do you respond when you pray over and over and over for something? And it seems like there's no answer, or at least not the answer that you want. When you're longing for it, when you're hoping for it, when you're trusting in God for it, you pray and you pray and you pray. But it seems like your prayers are met with silence. I think we're tempted in those moments to give up, to take control, to try to handle things on our own. But we need to stop and consider, God, why aren't you answering me the way I want you to? And, you know, sometimes I believe that's because we're, we, we are praying for the wrong things. We're, we're praying for things God never promised us as if he promised us. Or we're just praying for something that's just wrong. I mean, we read about this in James chapter 4, verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I mean, there's all kinds of things people pray for that are just wicked things. There's so often that we're even tempted to pray for God to bless something that's that's outside of his word. I mean, I've been asked as a pastor, Pastor, will you pray for this? And I'm like, well, I already know this is a bad thing. I'm not praying for that. There's some clear things in God's word that we are to turn from, repent from. So, so no, God's not going to bless that. And we see that in James. But, but I think that the bigger question here is, what, what about when we are praying for the right things? What about when we're praying with the right motives? Well, what about when our loved one is suffering and we're praying that God would heal them and he doesn't? What about when we're praying for what Zachariah and Elizabeth were praying for? We are struggling with infertility and we're praying for a child and yet we aren't able to have a child. 
What about when we're praying for someone we love and we care for who's an unbeliever and we're crying out to God, a God who says his desire is that all men might be saved. And we're praying that they might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, that they might repent of their sin. Well, what about when we're praying for a wayward child who is pursuing wickedness and evil, and it would be a good thing for them to repent. And these are good things we're praying for, but they don't happen the way we're asking. How do we respond then? We're tempted, I think, to give up. And I think it's in these moments we need to be reminded that God answers prayer. And maybe he doesn't answer it exactly how we want. Maybe he doesn't answer when we want. And we need to understand that God's timing is often not ours. But this does not mean that our God is silent. Ligon Duncan said it this way, prayers are not rejected just because God's answers are delayed. God will indeed keep every promise he made, but he may not keep those promises in the timeline or the way that we want him to. I've heard many pastors say it this way, he may not come when you want him, but he's always on time. And we see a picture of that in Luke chapter 1. So so the question really isn't, will God answer me when I pray? It's, It's, will we persevere in prayer and trusting in God, even in the midst of trial and difficulty and suffering and disappointment? One more question for us to look at. Number three there in your outline. As we consider now Zachariah's response, as we consider our response to God's word, number three, is your response to God's word faith and belief or doubt and unbelief? And so Zechariah and his wife have prayed for decades for a child. And now God sends an angel who breaks 400 years of silence to say, you're going to have a child. Our expectation at this moment might be for Zechariah to say, thank you, Lord. But notice how he responds. How is this going to happen? Now, I love how he says that he, I think this might be a, helpful tip for husbands here. Uh, For I am an old man, my wife is advanced in years. (laughs) He doesn't call her old. She's advanced in years. But what is he saying? I'm not sure this is going to happen. Here's a man who was faithful to God, who trusted in God, who believed in God when so many others didn't, who who likely endured the mockery of many for his faith, and yet when God says to him, your prayer's been heard, and now it will be answered, and it's going to be answered in a way you never expected, not only will you have a child, they're going to be the forerunner of the Messiah, they're going to be the fulfillment of a promise. Zechariah can't quite take all this in. He, He questions, and not just that, he doubts. In fact, what Gabriel says to him is that he doesn't believe. And so as a result, he's going to be mute until John is born. But notice, his his lack of faith doesn't keep God from doing exactly what he said he's going to do. Because God is faithful even when we struggle to have faith. And so here is Zechariah struggling, and yet God is perfectly faithful. And in his perfect timing, he provides 
the answer to his promise and to Zechariah's prayer. And so the last couple verses there, we see that perfect timing. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for four months she kept herself hidden. We don't really know why she did that, but she did. Uh, saying, verse 25, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. After all these years, God takes away this shame that so many had cast upon Elizabeth. After all these years, a child is going to be born, a child that will be crucial in the plan of salvation for us. John the Baptist will prepare the way for Christ. He will call people to repentance. He will baptize the Messiah. He will proclaim and testify at the river that the Messiah is coming. In fact, he'll make that proclamation from the womb, which we'll look at in a couple weeks in our study of chapter 1. But for now, one last thought. Are we trusting in God today? Is our response to the word trust and belief? Or is our response to the word doubt and unbelief? And friends, I'll remind you, we live in a day when there are many who will sit in a church pew this morning, perhaps some of you sitting in a pew here right now, many who will come to certain places in God's word and will say, yeah, but I, I don't believe that part. Well, yeah, that I'm not so sure about that part. Well, yeah, maybe Paul said that, but, but Jesus never said that. I'll remind you again, friends, there, there's no small print. There's no, he said, but he didn't say. From beginning to end, this is the word of God. Every verse is the word of God. Every promise made will come true. And that's a needed reminder for us today. Because it reminds us that in the midst of a wicked and evil generation, that God has a plan. And that God's plan is not thwarted by the sin of man. God's plan is not thwarted by our lack of faith. God will be faithful to his promises and his plans. And what does his promise say? It says that one day God will make all things new. That one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth. One day all of the suffering, all of the trials, all of the heartache will be expired. It'll be done. It'll be over. One day, those things we were praying for, that our, our loved ones wouldn't suffer. One day, those things we're praying for, that, that, that God would just bring healing and hope. One thing, one day, God will make all things new and all things right. And he promises to do that one day. And he calls us this Lord's Day to trust in him between this day and that. Two promises I want to remind you of to trust in. One is from Jesus in John 14, 27. A promise of peace. He says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He says, in this day, in this moment, we need not live in fear. We can have peace in the midst of suffering and trial because Jesus has left that peace with us and we receive that peace through trusting in him. And then he speaks of a day to come. Revelation chapter 21 tells us of the day when all things are made new. God will dwell with us and we will be his people and God will be with us as our God. He will wipe every tear 
from our eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Friends, that is a promise of God to his people. And God will keep every promise that he's ever made. And so the call for us this morning is to respond in praise and worship. In Revelation 21, we read that we're going to worship him then. And friends, we're called to worship him now. And so we're going to worship and respond to God by singing before the throne of God above. Now this was a hymn written by Charity Lee Bancroft. It's actually a poem originally entitled The Advocate. Uh, she was the child of an Irish minister. She grew up in the community of Bloomfield, different Bloomfield. This one was in Dublin. In 1841, she was born, and 20 years later, she wrote this hymn that we're still singing 160 years later. And so I find it helpful at times for us to, to think about these words before we sing them, and so I want to read them to you in hopes that we might sing them more worshipfully. This is what she wrote and what we'll sing. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. May we sing this hymn with hope, with faith, and belief. If you will stand together as I pray for us and as we sing.